All right, I want to uh, welcome our Cedar Lake campus, our HP campus, who are joining us uh, technologically here today. And uh, I have a couple things uh, about our um, church that I want to just uh, touch on before we get into the sermon. Uh, first of all, uh, we had something happen this last uh, week, sort of started quiet, but we wanted to make sure that if you could turn my mic down, something seems weird this service, if you work on that, thank you. Um, quietly this last week that you may not be aware of, but is actually a significant step forward in our media ministry. This last Monday, uh, we began a uh, 30-minute daily broadcast on Moody Radio Chicago. So Monday through Friday at 9.30 p.m., uh, we're on every day. And uh, that may not, maybe if you're not into the sort of media world, but that's a big, big step for us uh, to do that. And uh, we're excited about it. We're excited about the opportunity to, to preach and to proclaim truth, uh, to touch people that will never have the opportunity to you know, meet them necessarily, but in the Chicagoland area for them to hear that. We're also excited because it helps us in terms of our uh, church sort of footprint in the Chicagoland area. I think there's like maybe four local Chicagoland ministries that are on Moody Radio, we're one of them. And so we're uh, blessed to be partnering with them. We're thankful for Moody Radio doing that. Uh, we also are on every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock. We're right after Moody Church. And so maybe, depending on how long the sermon goes today, you could listen to that on the way home and uh, get a sense of what we're doing with that. So we're thankful for the people. We have people producing these and doing that. Very thankful for this step forward. We'll see what God has next for our media ministry. Second thing is, last Sunday, um, well, let me backtrack. Once a month, we have our benevolent offering, okay? Last Sunday, we said, Hurricane Harvey, let's just take up an offering and let's just give all of it uh, for hurricane relief. And uh, our church collected $27,000 last Sunday for uh, hurricane relief. Thank you. Thank you, everybody, that, that, that gave to that. What we didn't realize last week was that this Sunday, Hurricane Irma would be hitting uh, South Florida. And so we may, we're going to see how it goes. We may sort of allocate some of those funds, assuming that's okay, towards uh, relief in that area as well. And, you know, our hearts are very much with um, the Floridians today. And we have a lot of connections to South Florida, a lot of people that, you know, have been part of our church that have moved to South Florida. A lot of our seniors live there parts of the year, have properties there, and friends and family that we have in South Florida. So um, our hearts are very much um, with them. I'm going to pray for that. It's going on like as we speak right now. And I would encourage you to be in prayer. These are like, you know, in my lifetime, I, I remember a few of these along the way, but these are really, really significant and devastating experiences, and so we want to be in prayer, be a church that helps as much as we can. So let's pray together, and then we'll get into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that, uh, that you are a God who is building your kingdom, advancing your gospel. We thank you for evidences of fruit in our church, and to think of how many hundreds of young people Friday night heard the gospel, perhaps for the first time. We pray over our student ministries. We pray that you would bless them and that this would be a great year of ministry to students at Bethel Church. Father, we thank you for 
opportunities and doors opening for the media ministry of our church, and we pray over the journey. We pray that uh, you would use it to touch people's hearts, to build your church. We pray that uh, as we just continue to walk forward, as you allow with that ministry, that you would lead us and that you would guide us. Father, today our hearts are uh, heavy for uh, so many people, millions of people being affected by a devastating and powerful storm. We pray protection for them. We pray that you would be that shelter in the time of storm, shelter in the midst of storm, literally preserving life. We pray for that. We pray for the uh, uh, recovery after this happens and what role we might be able to have to represent the love of Christ, to be hands and feet for those that are in need. Please help us to know what we can do, what we should do, and we pray that we would do it. And as we come to your word now, Father, we pray that you would bless this new series that we're kicking off today. We pray that Christ would be honored by it. We thank you for your holy word as we open it now in Jesus' name, amen. If I was to ask you, what is the greatest threat to the church, or what is the greater threat to the church? I wonder what you might think, either subtracting from the gospel or adding to the gospel. What is the greater threat, adding or subtracting to the gospel? Now, here's what I mean by that, okay? Subtracting from the gospel would be to take something away from the actual gospel as given to us by the apostles, And down through history, there have been many attempts at subtracting. So subtracting from the gospel would be, for example, denying the deity of Christ. I am subtracting from the true gospel, the deity of Christ, or maybe the humanity of Christ. Uh, Down through history, there have been lots of other ones, including denying the bodily resurrection of Christ, or maybe denying the existence of God, or denying the supernatural. All of these would be serious gospel subtractions, and they are very much a a reality, and we need to be mindful of them. However, I would say to you, the greatest challenge, and church history shows this, the greatest challenge and the most insidious danger to the church is not adding to the, or not subtracting from the gospel, but rather adding to the gospel. Why is that? Here's why. Because if somebody rolls in here and says, I'm an atheist, I deny the existence of God, I would hope that most of us would see that and go, wait, that's not true. That is not the real gospel. Or if somebody, especially after like third, fourth century church sort of worked out the nature of Christ, his humanity, his deity, if somebody rolled in here and said, you know, he appeared to be God, but he wasn't, or he appeared to be human, but he really wasn't, I would hope that we would here at this point be able to say and look at that and say, you know what, that is not the actual gospel. You are like... You are, you are subtracting from the gospel. However, adding to the gospel is much more devious and much more devilish because adding to the gospel sounds right for the most part. So for example, if you met somebody, maybe it's a small group, new small group member, or maybe we're interviewing a new potential member to our church, or maybe welcoming somebody to our pulpit even, and we say, okay, so tell me, like, what do you believe? And they said, well, I can just tell you right now, I believe in Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, crucified, 
for sin, resurrected on the third day, coming again. It would be so easy for us to go, well, then you must be a dear brother and welcome into our fellowship because you are, you're like one of us. Ah, but this is the great deception, and this is what has led so many people away from the one true gospel. And what this fall we're going to be doing is we're going to be doing a teaching series on an event in history that recovered the one true gospel from massive additions to the, to the gospel. It recovered it from the midst of a culture that had layers and layers of additions to the gospel. In history, this is known as the Great Reformation. And this October is the 500th anniversary of that great moment in history. In fact, you say, well, how great is it? Noted church historian Philip Schaff says this of the Reformation. The Reformation of the 16th century is, next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. Starting from religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement and made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. Now that's a big statement there. But I believe that it is true and accurate. And so here on the 500th anniversary, why not revisit again what God did? And, and, and by the way, in the series, I want you to know we're not preaching the Reformation. We're not preaching the Reformers. We are preaching the doctrines that made the Reformation what it is. And my hope is that the truths that shook the world and changed the world would shake our hearts and shake our church and maybe shake Northwest Indiana and shake through our influence and networks the world as we are able and that our homes and our hearts would be shaped and shook again by what God did once and to say, oh God, do it again. How we need reformation again. Now, why the solas of the Reformation? We're calling this the Sola Series. And you may notice that I am wearing a shirt today. And uh, the story in this shirt is that our small groups are, are doing curriculum that coincides with this series. And one of our women's small groups uh, found out about the series. They got so excited about the series that they made their own T-shirts. And they gave me one. And I said, that's great. I'm going to wear it every day for three months. I'm going to wear this same t-shirt. No. But they gave me one, and I happily wear it today. And you'll notice on the shirt, it says sola scriptura, sola gratia, sola fide. These are known as the solas of the Reformation. So what does sola mean? Let's just begin with that, since that's the name of the series. Sola is a Latin term, and it basically means alone, okay? Alone. Our word solitary comes from that basic root word, sola. And the reformers attached, and those that write about the Reformation, attached sola to key categories that the reformers identified as being alone, okay? That the real gospel is this, alone. And so here are, here are the... the here are the Latin words, and isn't it fun, I'm sure you do this often, to roll out Latin in everyday conversation. I encourage you to do it as much as you can. So here are the, the Latin words that 
typically are, are associated with this. Here is the English of those. So sola scriptura, scripture alone. Sola gratia, grace alone. Sola fide, faith alone. Sola Christus, Christ alone. Sola Deo Gloria, God's glory alone. And the reformers in each one of these key categories said it is this alone. You cannot subtract from it. You cannot add to it. It is nothing more than this. It is nothing less than this. It is this alone. You cannot add to grace. You cannot add to scripture. You cannot add to Christ. You add to these things and you fundamentally change the nature of what it is. Chemistry isn't it gives us a good illustration of this. So we've hit Latin and now chemistry. Okay, isn't this fun today? Chemistry. If you go back in your in the cobwebs and remember a little bit about chemistry and the periodic table, the periodic table, the elements of the periodic table largely defined by the number of protons in the nucleus of the atom of that element. If you add a proton to an element, you might say, what's a big, it's just a little proton. It's no big addition. It doesn't matter that much. I mean, how big is a proton? It can't make that big of a difference. Really, you add a proton to an element, you are moving up the periodic table. So for example, hydrogen has whatever number of protons, I should have looked it up. Somebody here probably could tell me, go ahead. One, okay. It has one proton, apparently. <laughs> you add a proton to hydrogen, you no longer have hydrogen. Now you have helium, which is a totally different element. Helium has everything that hydrogen had, plus a proton now, making it entirely different. It is no longer hydrogen. And the solas identified, the reformers through the solas identified what is the essential nucleus, the irreducible nucleus of the gospel, from which if you subtract from it, it is no longer the gospel. If you add to it, it is no longer the gospel. And in the culture of that day, there were layer upon layer of man-added proton teachings like human merit and tradition and self-righteousness that were not merely add-ons to the gospel. They changed the nature of the gospel itself. And so the reformers said, no, the gospel is no more than this. It is no less than this. It is sola this. Sola gospel is my title today, which I don't think actually the reformers used. I made that up. But I think it applies to the overall point of this series and the emphasis of Galatians 1, verses 6 through 9. If you have a Bible, if you would turn there with me. Galatians 1, 6 through 9. Here's the context. The Apostle Paul goes to Asia Minor, plants a church amongst the Galatian cities there. We call it the Galatian church. And he was there maybe roughly a year, plants this church, leaves, one year later, he gets reports about this, just, just 12 months roughly later, he gets reports of what these Galatian believers are now beginning to believe and writes this letter to them 
a very sharp, very caustic letter, as you'll see here, because he realizes that these Galatian Christians are in jeopardy of compromising the actual gospel. And he writes this now, beginning in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be damned, is what he is saying. That's strong language, isn't it? Let him be damned. What had happened here? After Paul had left, there were teachers that the Galatian church allowed into their assembly, and their teaching was this. Yes, yes, we are forgiven by the work of Christ. Yes, Jesus died a substitutionary atonement for us. Yes, the Bible is God's holy word. All of that is true. Now, here's the thing you need to realize, folks. You need to trust in Jesus, but you must also obey the Old Testament law. Specifically, circumcision was the thing that they were teaching. You must be circumcised as a sign of your participation in the Old Testament Abrahamic covenant. These teachers did not roll into that town, into that church, wearing a t-shirt saying, hi, I'm a false teacher. No, they came in and they sounded right. Like they had that essential gospel right about Christ. They seemed to be hydrogen, but wait a second, they added a proton, didn't they? Their gospel was hydrogen plus which means that they were actually preaching a helium gospel, not the actual hydrogen gospel. And what was their addition? I don't know if you caught it here, but this was their addition. It was the gospel plus the Old Testament law. That is actually salvation. And Paul hears that, and he realizes what is going on. And he identifies the error, and notice, with apostolic authority, he condemns to hell anyone who teaches it. Let him, verse 8, let him be accursed. And then he repeats it in verse 9. Let him be accursed. Let he who teaches this be damned to hell. Unless you wonder how strongly Paul thinks about it, in a few verses he says this. I hope those that are preaching uh, circumcision to you, the knife slips and they emasculate themselves. Now that's vivid language, don't you think? I would say so. Right there in the Bible. Why such vehement language? Here's why, Bethel Church. Because the gospel of Jesus is everything. It is everything. There is one gospel that allows me, a sinner, to be forgiven of my sins and to have a relationship with God forever. And it is the gospel of Jesus. It is the most precious reality in all of the universe is this gospel. There is one truth that saves me from the wrath of God forever. Imagine it. 
the wrath of God forever, without change, without rescue, without hope. There is one gospel that saves us from that. And Paul says here, it doesn't matter who it is that tells you something different than what I have told you. He says, I don't even care if it's an angel from God. You are not to believe it. I put him under a curse. I put that angel under a curse. And you say, wow, who would believe all of that? Did you know history is filled with this? Mormonism is one example. The Mormon doctrine is based upon an angel that made an appearance and told them a doctrine that is different than the New Testament gospel. And how many million people today, right now, are following that angel's teaching? Even an angel, or in the 15th century, 16th century, a pope, even a pope who tells you something different than what I told you, do not listen, do not believe. There is one true gospel. It is not to be subtracted from, it is not to be added to, it is nothing less, it is nothing more. He repeats it in 1 Corinthians. He says this, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which is which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures." What is the gospel? It is this one essential, important thing. It is not to be fiddled with. It is not to be messed with. It is not to be subtracted from. It is not to be added to. There is one gospel that saves. Okay? Now, with that, let's talk about the Reformation. And I want to do a very brief history tour of uh, the Reformation. Uh, Five years ago, I had the privilege of going on a Reformation study tour with Dr. Erwin Lutzer from Moody Church. And uh, in fact, days before I left on that trip, I got engaged to Jennifer. In fact, single men, I would make that strong recommendation to you. Get engaged and then get as far away from the wedding planning as you possibly can. <laughs> and Germany does just fine for that. I can tell you from personal testimony. Okay, so on the tour, we stopped at these various, you know, key locations of the Reformation, primarily Martin Luther and his life and ministry, and, uh, and uh, I don't, I've never used these pictures, and so I'm actually kind of excited over the series without turning it into a photo vacation tour type experience of showing you some of the pictures that I was able to capture on that tour. It was a wonderful time. The Reformation is much, much bigger than Martin Luther. There were other key figures, even before Martin Luther, like, for example, John Huss and John Wycliffe. What, what was Wycliffe? Both of them, by the way, burned at the stake for their beliefs and their practices. We're talking about a culture today where people actually cared about what they believed. Okay? Wycliffe, by the way, what was his crime? He translated the Bible into English. Okay? And you, holding what you hold in your hand, people gave their lives for a copy of the Bible in, in English. That was John Wycliffe. In this day, uh, the culture of the day in the Western 
church. Okay, we're going to talk about the Western church, which is distinguished from the Eastern church. Very quick church history story. In the year 1054, there was a split known as the Great Schism between the Western church and the Eastern church. The Eastern church, now known as the Eastern Orthodox church. So when you drive around town and you see Macedonian Orthodox, Serbian Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, those are all churches that are in that Eastern part of of the church. The Western church became known as the Western Holy Roman Catholic Church, and we see those, of course, around us as well. You didn't know there was so much church history as you drive to the mall, did you? You are driving by all kinds of theology and, and churches. So the Western church, we're talking primarily about the Western church. The Western church at the time of the early 16th century was led by Pope Leo X. Okay, now this guy is an interesting guy. He is from the famous Medici family of Florence. This was a very cultured family. They loved the arts. Pope Leo hired Michelangelo to paint the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Pope Leo X uh, was trying to build St. Peter's Basilica, which to this day is the largest church in the world. This is Pope Leo X. Well, Michelangelo's and Sistine Chapels and uh, Basilicas do not come cheaply. They are incredibly expensive, and Leo was desperate for money. Enter now into the story a guy by the name of Albert of Brandenburg, okay, Germany, Brandenburg, Germany. Albert was a uh, bishop of, he had two bishopships, bishoprees, <laughs> not sure what you call it, but he had two of these bishop titles, but he very much wanted to be archbishop, but he wasn't qualified to be archbishop according to the rules of the church. But who cares? Money talks, right? So he goes to Pope Leo and says, I would like to offer you a deal. You give me the archbishopship, ship, sure, and I will pay you, and it was 10,000, I forget the denomination of the day, but 10,000, it was a massive amount of money. Well, Leo, who's trying to pay Michelangelo and build the St. Peter's Basilica, says, deal. You got it. So Albert now pays this money, borrowing it from banks in Germany to do it. Now he has this massive debt that he has to pay. It's an enormous amount of money. Enter now another character into the story, a monk by the name of Tetzel. Tetzel was Albert's salesman. And they, along with Pope Leo, concocted a way to raise money. And the way that they uh, decided to raise this money was to sell what was known in the Catholic Church as indulgences, okay? Something that, to this day, is still in the theology of the church, an indulgence. An indulgence was a grace gift from the church, whereby you or your family's particular sin could be forgiven. A past sin, a present sin, or even a future sin. You pay the money, you get sort of like a free pass. Okay? That's what they, that's what they taught. And uh, so what better way to raise money than to monetize the grace of God? That's what's going on here. Enter now into the story a guy by the name of Martin Luther. 
Martin Luther, quick story on him, Martin Luther was on his way to being a lawyer. When he was on his horse and he was in a terrible storm, a terrible lightning storm, he he was thrown from his horse, lightning's flashing all around him, he cries out to St. Anne, he says, St. Anne, if you save me, I'll go into the ministry. Well, he survived the storm, and so true to his word, he I gotta go into the ministry. So he enters into the monastery, gets all of his schooling, all of his training, and... uh, During this time, Luther was, by all accounts, a fastidious monk. He was terrorized by what he called unfectum, the holy terror of God. And there are famous stories of Luther, the the knights sleeping in, in a sackcloth and denying food and just incredible lengths he went to trying desperately to feel and find peace with God, but he could never find it. Okay? He could never find it. He graduates from seminary, and he is assigned as a professor to a little university in a little German town known as Wittenberg. Okay, Wittenberg. I have tried by research to prove that the town's real name was D. Wittenberg. <laughs> I have, as of yet, not been able to do that, but I am trying. While Luther was... At Wittenberg, he lectured through the Psalms, through Romans, and through Galatians. And one particular verse captured his heart, Romans 1.17, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Luther's whole approach to God had been not living by faith, but rather living and believing that peace with God came by your own self-denials and by your own confession of every little sin and by your own attempts to justify yourself before God. But the just don't live by their own works and merit. The just shall live by faith. And God used that verse and others to open his eyes to a fundamentally different approach to God than what he had been practicing and what he had been taught in the church. Not... Salvation by works, but rather salvation by faith and by sola faith, by faith alone. Not salvation that is merited, but faith that is sola gratia, grace alone. Not faith plus works or faith plus church traditions. Rather, he saw that these gospel plus things were not the actual gospel at all. And around that time, Albert and Tetzel are selling these indulgences. And Tetzel was like a marketing guy, okay? He actually came up with a little jingle that rhymed in German and actually kind of rhymes in English. This was the little jingle. Oh, by the way, I have a picture, okay? Show them this picture. This is an actual indulgence box from that era. I took this picture in Martin Luther's house. They have it on display. You can see where the, you know, the coin can go. And this is what Tetzel would say to the common people. As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. Now the common people, they don't have a Bible they can read or understand. It's all in Latin. All they know is whatever the priest told them. And if a priest says, you pay this money and your mama gets out of purgatory, which by the way, we don't teach purgatory here. I'm just saying this is what they taught of the day. Why not, right? Or think of any sin that you struggled with and if you put a little money in, you're forgiven it by God. People lined up 
money, so much money flowing in. And Luther sees all of this and he is dismayed at the indulgences and the culture of the church that would teach that and would allow it. And so on October 31st, 1517, 500 years ago this October, Martin Luther wrote out 95 grievances that he had with the church called theses now, 95 theses, and he goes to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, and he nails those theses to the door. And I have a picture, this is me, in fact, at the castle church in front of the door. Now, the actual door was a wood door, and later they made, it's copper or something, it's got all the the theses written out there, but that's the actual door that he went up to and he nailed. Now, I was able through some careful research to actually get a picture, who knew they had photography, of Martin Luther actually nailing the 95 theses. Here you go, this is it right here. There he is doing it. (laughs) Amazing, okay, amazing. Who knew that Luther was Dutch? (laughs) I I digress, Uh, okay. Now, here are some examples of, two examples from the 95 Theses. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. The church was not saying repentance, they were saying penance. Translating wrongly one particular verse from the Latin Vulgate, Luther discovers from the Greek New Testament, they have not translated this correctly. It is repentance. It is not penance. Number 62, the true treasure of the church is the most holy gospel of the glory and grace of God. Most people mark that day when he did that as the beginning of the Great Reformation. Now, let's fast forward, okay? So Luther gets done with that. He begins to write. He's writing, he's writing, he's writing, he's writing. The Gutenberg printing press had just been invented. So now you have the possibility of mass distribution of literature. And Luther's writings are spreading throughout Germany and people for the first time are hearing something different than they had heard from that, from the church all of these years. Word gets out to everybody, including Pope Leo, and Pope Leo describes Luther, he says, quote, there is a wild boar loose in the vineyard. Luther being the wild boar. Luther is called to account And that account ultimately leads to what is known as the, it looks like, the Diet of Worms. Okay, it's gross, right? But it really means the council at the city of Worms, where Luther is now called to account. He is about to be excommunicated from the church if he does not recant from the teachings that are in the books that he has written. And there's this whole drama moment. And here now, probably the most famous words of Martin Luther. This is his answer, standing before the council. He says this, Unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, or by evident reason, for I can believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear that they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself convicted by the testimony of Holy Scripture, which is my basis, My conscience is captive to the word of God, thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. God help me, amen. So he leaves that council, he is excommunicated, friends kidnap him. Who needs friends like that? (laughs) 
Friends, for his own safety, kidnap him and squirrel him away in the Wartburg Castle. Nobody there knows it's actually Luther. He has a little room there, and he begins to write, and he translates the, the, he translates the New Testament into German in 10 weeks, which is an astonishing, astonishing accomplishment. It tells you the sort of the intellectual capacity of this guy. Amazing. And through those writings and through the translation and people actually now being able to read the Bible in a language that they know and understand, the fire of Reformation becomes a firestorm and it sweeps through Western Europe. And this includes other figures that maybe you've heard of, Zwingli in Switzerland, Calvin in Geneva, John, uh, John Knox. I met a family from Ireland before this service. John Knox, Amen. The Irish know amen on that one, okay. (laughs) But they preached and they preached and they preached and they wrote and they wrote and they wrote. They protested the teachings of the church and became known as protestants, protestants, protestants as we say it now. So it's sometimes known as the Protestant Reformation. And there is so much more to this uh, story, but there is a very, very quick history. Okay, now. Why does this matter? Why are we talking about it? Why does it matter for today? Well, the first reason, and friends, my heart is so burdened on this, is that gospel plus is still rampant. It is still rampant. Even in churches that claim to be Christian churches, It is rampant. And I go back to what Paul says here in Galatians 1, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And notice he says, not that there is another one. Okay, Paul is writing this one year after he was pastoring these people. One year. We stand here now 2,000 years post-apostolic. For 2,000 years, people have been able to fiddle-faddle with the gospel, create mischief with the gospel, change the gospel. And the tragedy is, when you add to the gospel, it is no longer a gospel that saves. Okay, It doesn't. So if if after one year post-apostolic, the church was in danger of abandoning the actual gospel, and there's a warning, how much more should we, 2,000 years later, realize that we are susceptible to sort of accepting something that isn't actually the gospel. To have this sort of like, you know, get used to something not the gospel over time. It seems right, seems normal, good people saying it. This gospel plus is rampant all around us. And Paul doesn't say, hey, it's just their approach, it's a little different, it's okay. He says there is no alternative gospel. There is one gospel, and there is only one gospel, and anybody that believes or preaches a gospel other than this one gospel, they are condemned to hell forever. Why is this important? We're talking about eternity here, folks. This is heaven and hell forever. And how many people are in churches that are gospel plus type churches believing that this to be true, tragically, on their deathbed, believing, I'm going to close my eyes, and the next face I see is Jesus, and they open their eyes, and there he is not as Savior, but as judge. And they realize in that moment the holy terror of being under the wrath of God, 
being sentenced to hell and realizing there is no change from it. There again is no rescue from it. There is no softening of it. There's no upgrading of it. You are in hell forever. Why? Because you believed a gospel that doesn't save. There was something that was added to it that changed the nature of the gospel itself. How many churches? How many people believing that they are saved or taking the approach currently, which is like, hey, whatever, right? Whatever you want, whatever I do, whatever. It doesn't matter. We're all just be sincere about it. You say, well, like what? Well, here's some gospel plus things. How about gospel plus works? Something I do in here that means that I am saved. That's, that's a different gospel. How about gospel plus some emotional experience that you have to have that sort of validates, that sort of clinches the nail, it means that you're saved if you have this emotional experience. That's a different gospel. How about gospel plus involvement in some social thing that really is the focus of our church and this is what sort of justifies us is if we do enough of this. How about gospel plus tradition? How many millions of people today believing, attending, participating in faith where layer upon layer of tradition and ritual and smells and smoke and bells and all these things that get convoluted and added to it, somehow making me think that I am saved because I am believing in this. It is adding to the gospel. There are millions of people that attend churches where it is not grace alone. It is not faith alone. It is not scripture alone. It is not Christ alone. And Paul makes it clear, there is no other gospel. There is one gospel that saved. There is no other salvation all other gospels be damned to hell because they lead people there. Even at, Here's the tragedy. Even as they think they're on the path to heaven. We're not talking about the atheist or the person who says, I want to go to hell because my friends are there and there's no beer in heaven, blah, blah, blah. Those people know where they're going. I'm talking about people that sincerely believe that they are on the path to heaven because they are practicing and believing the church or faith practice that they're a part of, but their hope is not in Christ alone. And the gospel is Christ alone, his work on the cross, none of me, none of this other stuff, but him alone, okay? There is no other name under heaven whereby men might be saved, and that includes the name of a pope, it includes the name of a pastor, it includes the name of a church, and it includes your name, friend. You are not saved in any other name but the name of Christ. And faith, believing and trusting in him and in him alone. And that's what the Reformation wonderfully did. It recovered, it, un, it discovered once again that apostolic gospel that over time had been added and added and added and added and added until it just wasn't even the gospel anymore. And the gospel is constantly and persistently in need of rediscovery. Bethel Church needs to rediscover the gospel. And every generation does as well. Tragically, gospel plus is still rampant. I don't want anybody here trusting in any righteousness other than the righteousness provided to us by faith 
by grace through Christ alone. Okay? And finally, the reality is that we are in constant need of the reforming that the gospel alone provides. And the reason for this is that we are basically prideful and selfish people. That is our fundamental default setting. We are prideful and selfish people. We desperately, we wanna save ourselves. We wanna justify ourselves. We wanna make ourselves look good in the eyes of God, somehow thinking that if I live a good enough life, if my kids turn out good enough, if I sort of have enough things piled up on the side of me being a really great person, that somehow this merits favor with God. We wanna be our own messiahs, we wanna be our own saviors. We're trying constantly to justify ourselves. But the gospel, the real gospel comes along and says the opposite of that. The opposite of that is that I cannot justify myself before God. The church cannot justify me before God. No one justifies me before God but Christ and him alone. And that's what Luther and others, they highlighted what Luther called the alien righteousness. We'll talk about this more later. That the righteousness that saves, it cannot come from us because everything we do is tainted by sin. All our, all our good works are like filthy rags and merit no favor with God. If we're going to be saved, if we're going to have righteousness, it has to come from outside of us. And that is what God provides, the righteousness of Christ by faith. We live by faith in Christ and him alone. And so we always need what the gospel provides, this constant reminder. It points us to the reality that we are great sinners, but Christ is a great savior, that his death is greater than all of our sins, that the love of God is not merited by anything that we do. It is God's sovereign grace bestowed upon us because he is a loving and saving God. That is his nature. That is not our nature. It is sola God. It is sola gospel. It is sola grace. It is sola faith. It is sola glory. It is sola Christ. So we do not preach the Reformation. We do not preach the Reformers. They were sinners just like you and me. We preach the doctrines and the truths that shook the world and pray as we do it that God would shake us again. To say, oh God, bring revival to us. Bring recovery to us. Bring renewal to us. Bring reformation to us. Sola God. Sola gospel. There is only one. Amen.